Hi everyone, welcome to Baby Steps Nutrition, a podcast that focuses on nutrition, health, and wellness for families of children of all ages and stages. I'm your host, Argavon Neil Forouge, a pediatric dietitian and mom of two young children. My goal is to bring you impactful information that you can apply every day in a simplified, practical form to make life easier. Now let's get into today's conversation. Today we are exploring the fascinating world of behavioral analysis, where we will dive deep into the science behind human behavior, insights into effective interventions, and the importance of this field in shaping positive outcomes for children and adults. Aaron Rudy obtained his Master of Science in Behavioral Psychology from Pepperdine University and recently became a board-certified behavioral analyst. Aaron works with children with autism and other behavioral challenges using applied behavioral analysis, an evidence-based, data-driven, individualized therapy to teach skills and strategies to both child and parents based on the psychological philosophy of behaviorism. Hi, Aaron. Welcome to the Baby Steps Nutrition Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me on. That was quite a mouthful, and this is why I'm glad that you're here. It's a tongue twister for sure. And just to wrap my head around the concept, I mean, I work with kids. I analyze children all the time. I'm an analyzer by nature, but this is a very specific area where I'm so glad that you're here because we're going to be really delving deep into the data behind it. Um, As friends, it's not often that we get to chat about our experiences and perspectives to the level that we're covering today. So I'm super, super excited that you're here and thank you for your time. Of course. Thanks for having me. I'm definitely excited too. I think, uh, you know, for all the, all the great things about ABA, uh, it definitely has a lot of jargon and it's very, uh, very deep. So I'm, I'm hoping to kind of shed some light on it and make it a little more uh, user friendly. That's kind of part of the job. We are so appreciate that here. So let's get this party started. Um, I want to ask your backstory. What initially sparked your interest in thinking that you wanted to become a behavioral analyst? Well, when I was growing up, my mom would always tell me, you know, pay attention to what you're good at. And I think one of the things that always has kind of been a, a recurring theme in my life is uh, just the ability to connect with people and especially with children. I think I've always been really good with kids. It's always been very easy for me to build rapport with them. Uh, I think they, they gravitate towards me too. And I have a, a unique perspective that, that allows me to kind of understand and empathize with you know, what the child's going through. And uh, I really value kind of teaching that ability to connect or trying to impart on on younger people uh, how to show kindness and how to connect with people and just kind of be your best self. Um, So when I went into school, uh, I went into psychology. I think I was originally business. Um, You know, it's funny because looking back, it seems super clear Uh, what my path was the whole time. But Mm. uh, at the time, I definitely did not know what I was doing. Uh, When I entered college, my undergrad, I think I was in business or economics or something. And (laughs) I very quickly switched to psychology. And uh, I 
focused a lot on child development. Um, I actually took a behavior class, uh, behaviorism, funny enough, where we actually got to, you know, do the experiments uh, with the pigeons in the Skinner box <laughs> and recording their key pecs and how they learn behavior. And I actually bombed that class super hard. It was very difficult. I did mm-hmm. not, uh, you know, synthesize the the concepts at all at the time, which I think is very funny because I ended up kind of dedicating my life to it in the end. Um, but yeah, so I went through, I got my undergrad um, in psychology and pretty, pretty quickly out of college, I um, started as a RBT, which is a registered behavioral technician. We'll get into all the acronyms, all that fun stuff later. <laughs> but um, basically, it's the one-on-one aid. Um, like my current position is I'm the supervisor. I kind of am the case manager. And the, the RBT is the one who like directly works with the kids the most. Um, but I love that. I did that for five years. Um, decided to you know pursue it and get my master's in behavioral psychology. And the rest is history. Here I am. Yeah. And I can 150% attest to your connection with kids. You, My kids adore you, as you know. But it's just that you're able to meet them where they're at and the language that you use. And it's a really deeper connection than just an adult talking with a child. But when children feel seen and heard, that's when they're able to have those meaningful connections with an adult. And the second thing I noticed immediately upon meeting you, which I really value and I really am inspired by is your communication skills. I think so many adults weren't taught that, but for you, it's like naturally innate. The language that you use, the ability to be so articulate and communicate your needs, but also understand someone else and have that connection with them. And they feel, again, like they're being seen and heard. So it's not just with kids, but with adults. And I'm sure that's what makes you great at the job that you do. Um, Thank you. I appreciate you saying that. And in speaking of all of those qualities that you need to work, especially with children with challenging behaviors, what are some of those common challenging behaviors? The first question, and let's talk about how the family is impacted before we get into what skills are required to be a successful communicator and an and an analyst. You know, I think um, a lot of the a lot of the problems that families with uh, children with the ASD diagnosis have to deal with are, you know, really stressful. Um, it kind of can can warp the warp their lives around the the you know support that the kiddo needs. I think um, I've gotten to work really closely with a lot of families, and um, mm-hmm. it's really kind of what drives me to, you know, continue in this field, I think, is just to provide the the help that I can. Um, you know, it's very, it's just very stressful, um, especially, you know, sometimes on the siblings, the parents, mm-hmm. of course, uh, dealing with the challenging behaviors, uh, dealing with the different, you know, extra supports that their child might need and advocating for them you know, making sure that they're getting what they need out of school, you know, it it all really depends on like where, where the child's at too, right? You know, it's, Mm -hmm. it's definitely the, the struggles are different between, you know, uh, a kiddo who's just kind of, you know, higher functioning, but just has some of those, those troubles um, with some of the more nuanced social skills or, or fine motor skills, for example, versus, you know, uh, a child who, 
is nonverbal, um, engaged in a lot of self-injurious behaviors or has kind of those more um, severe sensory needs that that need to be addressed. So it's really, you know, it, it can be all sorts of things. It, you know, a lot of it, I'm sure, is overlapping with the, the regular struggles of a parent, right? You know, mm-hmm. um, imparting your kind of philosophy onto your child and, and making sure that they have uh, you know, moral, moral compass or the ability to, you know, navigate life and situations as they need to. Um, but oftentimes, you know, can just be so amplified for these families. Yep. And having work with children and families myself, I know that the rate of separation and divorce are very high for families when there are kids with challenging behaviors. I know the siblings often report feelings of resentment because there was so much attention that was given to that one child. So that other child had to develop certain coping mechanisms to not add further stress to the family dynamic, but also be able to, in so many ways, fend for themselves when there was no additional support available. So I love the fact that you said an advocate, because no matter, I feel like whatever industry a person is in, when you work with a child, you're essentially an advocate for that child and for the family. Yeah, definitely. I think I think that is definitely one of the the main challenges of just making sure that you can set your your child up to have, you know, a good and fulfilling life. I think that's what every parent wants. So, what are these ABA based interventions that you use in your work, and how do you think this applied behavioral analysis compares with other treatments? Because we know there's so many different modalities that providers use to help children with autism and other challenging behaviors? So I think um, to give you a little bit of an example or insight into kind of where the strategies of ABA come from, I'm going to circle back to the first part of that other question, um, kind of what challenging behaviors, because I think that that can kind of be uh, indicative of what the, the kind of shift in philosophy is uh, when we're talking about behaviorism. So you asked what challenging behaviors do uh, families commonly deal with? And I think that can be answered a couple different ways. So I could answer it based on the topography of the behavior, like what does the behavior look like? How would I describe it? But I think oftentimes what's more important and what's what we try to focus on is what is the behavior trying to communicate? What has the learner experienced in the past when they've engaged in this behavior? What impact on the environment did that behavior have? Because I think that is the key kind of to ABA is we look at um, what's called basically just the patterns of behavior um, and how we learn things is through... um, I'm not going to get too far into the jargon, but basically our our history of when we engage in this behavior, how does that um, impact what follows? We call that the consequence. And it's not consequence like something, you know, oh, go to your room. But if, for example, uh, the classic example is a child, you know, cries in the supermarket because they're... Uh, they want their mom to get them a candy bar, right? Um, and then if the mom buys them the candy bar, that 
is kind of where the we we can look at that um that behavior of you know crying and that was communicating the child communicating i want a candy bar and it was successful whereas maybe um if they'd asked appropriately mom might have said maybe next time so aba is applied behavior analysis so that these philosophies of behaviorism that were taught by bf skinner take the patterns of behavior we take the behaviors we see um and we take data on them how you know it can be the frequency that they're occurring and we we kind of take like an inductive method of uh how can we help either teach the learner skills um how can we help modify the environment how can we teach parents or caregivers to respond to you know challenging behaviors it's it's kind of like a a whole package of of different uh strategies and interventions um but it is currently to circle back to the the start of your question it's currently basically the gold standard for um you know children with autism especially those with problem behaviors or that um have you know significant deficits in like social skills or um you know finer gross motor we can help with too um but that's usually more occupational therapy uh segueing into that um i would say those are also very important fields for children with autism i think often you know speech language pathology you asked about um how do they compare how does aba compare basically to other interventions and i think um there's some that that overlap with it and there's some that it can address what those things so what i guess what i'm getting at is there's a lot of non evidence based um practices that crop up essential oils uh whatever you you know you hear kind of like just uh non evidence based but there's also you know the the really important ones i think that ABA go hand in hand with would be like occupational therapy definitely to build those gross and fine motor skills uh speech language pathology goes hand in hand with ABA and teaching communication skills um kind of teaching more the nuts and bolts of of how to communicate and kind of like the movements of the mouth etc or or using a an augmented communicator an AAC it's a communication device you know the iPad yeah and very cool um yeah, I, I think overall, it's it's just the the almost the only treatment for for behavioral problems that's that's relevant nowadays. Yeah, so fascinating. And with kids, although we know that each child is unique, there are common characteristics according to the stage of development that they're in. Would you say there are certain approaches given wherever that child is in that stage of development that one can apply? Or does it completely, it's all unique, dependent on the child, the home environment, and their development? No, I think you bring up a really good point. It's definitely, so when we're making treatments, we want it to be, so the applied part is we want to not only target uh, behaviors and and try to uh, help promote changes that are you know socially significant to the learner and their family, um, but also um, that they're so a little bit of both, right? So we want to make sure that, you know, if a parent comes to us and, you know, they're worried about 
something that's just not even age appropriate for uh, a neurotypical child will kind of be able to to let them know, hey, you know, don't worry. Like, that's that's not something we're super concerned about. That's, you know, like a, a four-year-old, regardless of their age, is going to have a tantrum every once mm-hmm. in a while. It's just, it is what it is. Um, but I think the that's definitely part of it. So taking in, uh, keeping in mind their stage of development and, and where they, you know, would or should quote unquote be at um, compared to peers. Uh, there's assessments we do uh, on just skills in general that are that are mostly evidence. Well, they are evidence based, and they're all observable skills. Um, and they've you know done research behind it. There's the VB map, the Vineland, um, and there's a whole bunch of research behind it where they're you know researching neurotypical kids. And, you know, where the, you know, developmental milestones are for those children and kind of are able to, to map out basically like where, where the learner needs more support and, you know, where they're, you know, able to, to meet the, the required task basically. Um, But yeah, it's, it's all individualized. You know, when we sit down um, with the initial assessment, a lot of it is, uh, well, it almost always starts with the parent interview. Um, you know, what are the, like, why are you coming to, like, what, why do you think you need ABA kind of deal where, what are the, what are the behaviors you're seeing? What are the, the skills you want to build, et cetera. Um, and then we'll do our initial assessment. We'll kind of see what we observe, see if we observe the same thing. And it's, it's collaborative with the parent and the family, right? So mm-hmm. We were working with the parent, you know, it might be like, oh, you know, we didn't see this in, in this observation. And you think, you know, what do you think are the environments or the antecedents? Like what happened? What are the setting events or the, you know, situations in which the behavior occurs? Um, so we can maybe try to observe those situations and then. Um, try to come up also with an individualized behavior plan for that child to uh, both kind of target the problem behaviors for reduction, but also to see what um, reinforcement, which is basically what is maintaining the behavior, why, why the child keeps engaging in the behavior and see how we can get that need that is being met by that behavior met with a replacement behavior. So an example of that would be uh, a child screaming. Uh, We would not follow through with, you know, what the child wants, what they're screaming for. Um, But we would, you know, prompt them and teach them to ask appropriately. And if they do ask appropriately, we would follow through with what they're asking for. uh, And then, you know, fade that back over time. Uh, systematically so that the behavior maintains without, you know, having to follow through with every demand that the child gives, basically. Maybe a single skill or goal would look like. No, it's also fascinating because it's essentially the intended outcome that you want. And you almost have to backpedal and go, okay, if I'm not there, what are things that are working and not working? And then those are the things that you have to reevaluate, right? As the professional yeah. to get there. 
Yeah, no, definitely. I think it's it's kind of a process of of finding out what what's maintaining the behavior. So why is it occurring essentially? Uh, and then trying to figure out how the child can appropriately meet that behavior. Mm-hmm. Depending or where they're at. That. Yeah, exactly. And then Aaron, when you first meet a child or a client, so they could be an older child or a young adult and their families, and you're doing the initial assessment and then probably multiple meetings after that to come up with some plan. We know trust is vital. So even as a parent, it's the connection before the correction. What steps are you taking to establish the big T word, the big trust and that rapport so that you can continue further with the family? Actually, the first step of of beginning ABA, so when when the one-on-one therapist uh, enters the home, is to build rapport with the child. And I think that is, you know, we just, we don't go in there and, and start imp- implementing the program saying, hey, you know, if you do this, this happens, you know, it's no, there's no kind of take them by storm. It's, it's definitely more, you know, leading with, with sugar than with vinegar. Um, mm, we I love that expression. And- <laughs> I'm going to use go- that. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, um, I think it's really, and that's a, a core philosophy of ABA too, is, is we always exhaust all possible options of reinforcing a positive behavior or a, um, you know, a replacement behavior before we resort to uh, punishing the problem behavior, right? So first we'll try every everything we can to just promote that positive behavior without resorting to, to kind of punishment procedures. And I, I, you know, I don't have time to get into all of these, um, these terms, I imagine, but just as a, a quick aside, when I say punishment and reinforcement, basically what I mean is, uh, reinforcement is we're presenting something after the behavior that makes it more likely to occur. So, you know, uh, praise is often, a, a common reinforcer. Um, you know, kids earn stars in the classroom when they answer questions or raise their hand instead of shouting out that kind of thing. And punishment is we're specifically trying to reduce a behavior. So stuff like timeouts, you, you know, you hit your brother, you lose screens for the night, that kind of thing. So we always try to, um, you know, oftentimes that we, we do end up using those if it's not, uh, salient enough to, just reinforce uh, the replacement behaviors because a lot of the times um, life gets in the way, right? There's things we can't reinforce. There's situations where, oh, we got to jump in the car right now and go. We can't take a a long time to kind of transition. Basically, um, we try not to use punishment whenever possible and try to instead to kind of catch the child being good. I was going to say what I'm finding most interesting is there's a lot of pivoting that needs to happen. So it's almost like the opposite of as a parent, you've been told you got to be consistent, you got to be consistent, you got to be consistent to get the desired outcome. But in this case, it's you could have a plan, but along the way, if something isn't working, you have to reevaluate, reassess and come up with a new plan. Definitely. I think so. I think there's. That is 
both true and false. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is um, I think one of the core components of ABA is consistency. So what we're trying to create is when X problem behavior occurs, uh, we are not providing the reinforcement that the child had in the past. If a child hits or screams for attention, we're trying to limit attention during that situation across people, across settings, um, as much as possible. So in that sense, um, definitely consistency is key. So um, if there is a rule that, you know, we we hit, we lose screens. If that's an, a, an established rule, we have to follow, we want to follow through with that as much as possible. Um, however, if you are noticing that an intervention, for example, maybe the screen, you're implementing that procedure where the, the child hits, they lose screens, um, and you're implementing it consistently every time they hit, they lose screens, uh, and they're still hitting then we know that there's something else we can do to kind of modify the environment or modify the strategy we're using to reduce that behavior. Mm, so got it. it is both <laughs> true and not true. <laughs> you have to pivot, but you also have to um, kind of give the the strategy that you are doing, like it's, it's proper try, so to speak. Or, and, and oftentimes, you know, it'll be, you have a good strategy or, um, maybe the strategy would work in a vacuum, but it's just so hard to implement or like, it's just not feasible for say parents. I'm trying to think of an example of, uh, maybe you, I don't know, want to have the, the kiddo be, I don't know, reinforced by like 10 minutes of playtime with, with parent, um, because that's, that's why they're, or that's, um, what has been maintaining the behavior of, I don't know, like screaming or some, some sort of problem behavior has been maintained by parent attention where uh, maybe the, when the kid's doing their own thing, um, you know, parents are doing their own thing, but then when the child screams, parents come over and provide attention. So maybe your strategy as the BCBA was to have the, parent give attention for, you know, X amount of time uh, when the child appropriately asks. But I don't know, life gets in the way, you know, you're not maybe they work from home uh, almost all day and they're just simply not able to do that. You know, they can't like the child comes to their door and knocks appropriately like, mom, can you come out and hang out with me? Like you can't get up from your work meeting and and go follow through with that. So you have to reevaluate. Well, that's maybe not a, a feasible um, intervention or it's not something that we can be consistent. So it could be either, right? So it could be your intervention, just it wasn't feasible to, to follow through with it consistently uh, or like you said, it's just not working. Like it's not producing the desired result. Yeah, and I actually would love if you can discuss and we know there's patient confidentiality, but a case or a, a situation where you felt initially confident in coming up with an intervention plan, and then there were so many hurdles and obstacles along the way, and you had to keep adjusting your strategy. So essentially, it's any of the aha moments or light bulb moments that you have learned along the way, working as closely with the families that you have. 
you know, one I'm thinking of is where it's just almost like such a simple solution, right? Where, you know, I had a, I had a kiddo who was getting support in an aftercare setting and his main thing was uh, unexpected changes would kind of trigger, you know, tantrum behavior. He would kind of stomp off and, and cry. He wouldn't be able to accept alternatives. You know, if a toy he liked was missing, like maybe he wanted to play with a specific toy at the aftercare. And if that toy wasn't able to be located, he would have a tantrum, right? Um, so one of the things that would happen pretty often would be that he would not like the snack choice for the day. So he would go ask the ask the counselor, oh, what's for snack? Oh, you know, it's, I don't know, Cheerios and milk. Cheerios and milk. And he would, you know, fly off the handle and be super upset and, you know, almost inconsolable. What we would do is, is um, we would, you know, wait for him to calm down. Um, we ended up kind of Band-Aid fixing where, uh, you know, if he would calm down and ask appropriately, he could ask, you know, for, they would have stuff in the storage, the, you know, old storage and the aftercare, maybe have mm-hmm. some brand. Like a substitute. Exactly yeah. Like. Um, but really the solution just ended up being, I asked his nanny to pack him an extra snack. Like, yeah. like throw some, throw some cheer or not cheers, throw some, uh, what do you call it? Goldfish yeah. in his backpack, like in a different pocket. So he wouldn't mm-hmm. eat it at lunch. And then. There you go. Zero more and no more tantrums over snack choice. So it's really not, it's not some kind of glorious, like, wow, the behavior is maintained by this. It's, it's just, you know, just give them, pack them an extra snack. Yeah. And I think it's because you got to the root of the problem where maybe it wasn't even about the food, but it was a power struggle and having control and autonomy over something that maybe in a day's worth of choices you don't have control over. So that's where I feel the work that I do is really important, but I come across that all the time. Often it's the food that there's a lot of resistance with. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 It's, it's definitely kind of a, you know, it could be like, you can interpret it a lot of different ways. One definitely is it comes back to the, the perseveration and, and kind of, inflexible thinking where it's it's just really difficult in the moment to try something new for for some of these learners um but yeah i think a lot of the times that can be trying novel foods as well that's going back to the the earlier question uh trying novel foods is definitely a recurring theme in my job yes this is where you and i need to have more conversation right Definitely. And it's, you know, it's recurring themes in every parent's life, I'd imagine. Like it's, it's like I was saying earlier, it's like all the, all the struggles, you know, I just observing parents with, with neurotypical kids, it's like, you know, maybe their, their own ability to self-regulate is they're you know, they're able to self-regulate a little faster. Totally. It's, it's kind of, you know, they're just, they're just kids. They're just learning. And, and I think that's one of the main, you know, things that has allowed me to, to progress as far as I have in, in this field is, is really understanding that it's just, you know, this 
of any other, like we we have those kind of self-stimulatory behaviors you know mm-hmm. i bounce i'm bouncing my leg right now in my chair <laughs> kind of um when i get told i have to go into the office at you know five or if i have to sub for a session i get anxious it's you know we like we all don't like unexpected changes yeah. we all have self-stimulatory behaviors or or different kind of outlets that are trying to just fulfill our needs and keep us in homeostasis just the same as you know any organism let alone human yeah and these are all crucial skills that we know are essential but they need to be developed over time and of course with kids they're so rapidly growing physically and mentally so it is a journey and it takes time i feel like even as adults i always say this, I'm still learning. I'm going to be learning till I'm old and gray. So especially with kids, we need to, as hard as that is, patience and compassion. But of course, it is also so, so difficult. And this is where you don't have to do it alone. And you can reach out to a qualified professional to help support you and your family. Definitely. Um, Erin, I'd love if you could share, how do you stay up to date? I'm sure there's so many developments and advancing research in the field of behavioral analysis. How do you stay on top of everything? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I'm definitely blessed with my current company, uh, Cortica. It's not only are we are we kind of working closely with with clinicians of different practices. So, you know, we have the we have the occupational therapists, Mm -hmm. uh, the speech language pathologists, the music therapists. Um, but we also have a really good group. I think they do a really great job, especially of kind of fostering community within the employees of, you know, we have group chats on on teams where uh, we'll discuss cases. You know, we meet with all the all the other BCBAs and, and assistant supervisors and we'll do case collaborations and we'll brainstorm together. Uh, kind of as a unit on what, like, oh, hey, you know, I've had a kiddo with us had a similar behavior as that. Here's what we tried. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that kind of thing where, you know, we're bouncing ideas off of each other. Um, Google Scholar, maybe it's a cop-out, but I like Google Scholar. <laughs> I use that. I, you I know, do it's too. When I was in college, they they granted us access to, you know, whatever, like the paid for um, Yep equivalents and I would just use Google Scholar because <laughs> I couldn't figure them out. So <laughs> I, you know, a I'm a big resource. Google Scholar enjoyer. Uh, I will, I'll always swear by it. Um, I still have my, all my textbooks and, and um, you know, I think a lot of it, like definitely the field's progressing, especially like the, the application and kind of the, the finer points of like, how do we, transfer this philosophy into a like a clinical care how do we make sure that we are you know maintaining client dignity uh making sure that we are you know remaining ethical and i think in that sense google scholar and and we do you know conferences there's a a yearly conference called the abai that i'm hoping to attend now that i'm a bcba yeah. Uh, so hopefully this year I'll be able to do that. Um, but yeah, you know, there's conferences um, that's always developing, but the core principles and and kind of philosophy behind it um, is for the most part staying the same, um, you know. So 
I use my old textbooks. I've got my old uh, my old note cards. Call them the SAF meds. Say say as many as fast as you can in you know sixty seconds. So go through those. Um, if there's you know specific principles or strategies that um, I need to brush up on, I can look them up. Most relevant form is just bouncing ideas off of other clinicians. Um, I think that's the best way to, you know, just stay in the loop. Um, you know, what you hear from your colleagues a lot of the times, like, oh, hey, you know, did you hear about this new strategy? Oh, that that strategy is not really being used anymore. Uh, and also, just in general, I think um, having your own perspective, like there's there's strategies that are approved in ABA that I just personally don't like or don't like using unless it's literally the perfect situation to use it. Um, and I think other clinicians have their own, you know, preferences and kind of um, ideas in, in that regard too. So I think um, that is really a valuable thing is just is talking with each other and reconciling basically this optimized strategy of studying behavior but it's not always that simple to apply it to real life right like it can be as perfect as it wants to be but real life will always throw an extra variable or what if this happens and i think a lot of the times it's up to us to uh use our best judgment within the code of ethics of the the like behavior analysts. Yeah. And this is why I love the interdisciplinary approach on the collaborative work, because someone can bring in a new, new perspective and you can hear them out and still then be able to form your own professional opinion or judgment. But it's cool to hear all the different perspectives, like you said, based on experience and based on, you know, their level of knowledge and their preferred approach. So there's so much beauty in that for sure. Um, Erin, I want to ask you on a personal level, what aspects of this work keep you going day to day that you find most fulfilling and motivating? Um, I think definitely just being able to, you know, observe the changes that are happening in the families and the kids, being able to interact with the kids, uh, kind of learning their little quirks and what they like and and finding ways to incorporate it into the behavior plan. Um, you know, I've got my kid who loves playing Mario and we, you know, we, you can teach through that, right? Like you can, you know, maybe I'm I'm playing with him and I take the star and he wanted the star. Oh, let's, how are we going to deal with that? But as far as like the principles of ABA, it's almost, you know, objective and absolute, but the application of them and finding new ways to, to kind of teach and, and modify the environment and, um, you know, help families. Um, This basically this whole, whole podcast, the, the style is almost similar to like my parent training meetings where I'm just trying to conceptualize. And obviously it's more personalized to a single kiddo, but um, trying to just conceptualize these, these principles and these strategies 
uh, in a concise and, and applicable way to the learner is very interesting to me. Um, so that's yeah. definitely a big part of it. Love it. And knowing you as well as I do, I know you genuinely love hanging out with kids. There's just this magic that happens when you're just right there with them. So I can tell like that's when your heart opens up and you have the sparkle in your eye and the kids are just smiling and giggling and they in return enjoy their presence in your presence. So um, I love that so much. Um, We've also talked about how you've had really stressful days, right? As friends, we've talked about there were days that were just really difficult. How do you address burnout in your life? And for someone that wants to pursue this line of work, what advice would you give them? I think really what it comes down to is just understanding. Like once you dive into the the kind of perspective of, of behaviorism and just basically view every behavior that, that you know, every, every hard time I've had in work has been a, a child trying to communicate with someone, whether it be me or an adult, or they don't know how to communicate what they're trying to say. Um, I think it's really important to, to just understand and separate yourself um, from what's happening in the sessions. Yeah. Um, you know, I had a, I had a kid that when I was an RBT, when I was the one-on-one that I worked with, and basically <laughs> he would have like very creative insults that he would throw at me, for example. So like, you know, he would just, he would know how to get you. He'd just yeah. know what, what, what pushed your button. Yeah. So he's waiting for that I, reaction. Yeah. And exactly. Yeah. And I, you know, I think just um, another thing is focusing on like, you know, what is the, what is the correct response here? Or, yeah. um, I, I think about this a lot. I mean, you know, I'm a, a big gamer, but yep. a lot of the times there's a lot of just in, in general, in games and in life, you know, luck or playing the numbers or, you know, um, essentially, you know, you can make the right choices and still lose essentially, yes. or still come off worse or still um, have a negative outcome. And just understanding that, you are all, almost always going to revert to the mean after like if you flip a coin enough times it's going to deviate towards 50% even if you flipped 10 tails yeah. um so i think understanding that too where even if a day was rough that doesn't mean that the child's not making progress that doesn't mean that you're doing anything wrong specifically uh it could just be unlucky you know sometimes yeah. we just get unlucky um, and then the other aspect, I think self-care is really important. Um, using your own self-regulation strategies. Like if you're having a really tough time, like if you're an RBT or you're a parent or you're a supervisor, whoever it is, if you are interacting with uh, a child who is engaging in problem behaviors, it's okay, you know, as long as the child's safe to step away, to take a deep breath, to gather yourself and to try to self-regulate before you come back and try to ad- address the problem because one of the other big philosophies of uh, ABA is you can't learn while you're upset. Basically. I mean, it's, it's a little more like you can't teach when you are not at uh, regulation. Yep. Uh, you can't learn. You can't teach. So it's really a matter of 
when you are feeling upset, when you're feeling overwhelmed, to try to do what you need to do to get back to neutral, whether that's, you know, go to the dog park (laughs) or take a walk, read a book, take a bath, whatever you do to kind of wind down at the end of the day, try to just reset and accept what's happened and accept, you know, maybe it wasn't the best day, but that doesn't, you know, reflect on you or your future, I guess, or how things are going to go and just roll with the punches. Yeah. And it always goes back to that oxygen mask analogy. You got to take care of you first before you can take care of others, especially in more demanding jobs um, such as this. Um, Erin, where can our listeners find out more about you and or other resources that you can recommend for parents who would like to pursue ABA for their child? I mean, mm-hmm. if you are a parent and you're, you know, concerned about your child and want to check up, I think you would probably go either to a child psychiatrist or just probably talk to your pediatrician and they would, they would refer, refer you, um, you know, just voice your concerns. Um, if you want to find more about me, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm just a, I'm just a guy working in the field, but mm-hmm. uh you know, my, I'm Aaron Rudy. You can find me on LinkedIn if you have any questions. Awesome. We um, appreciate that so much. And I'll be sure to include all of resources, links, um, maybe an email address for people if they have questions that they can go to. Um, Aaron, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today. You know I'll have even more questions for you the next time I see you. Hint, hint. Um, <laughs> of, course, of course. It's been so great chatting with you as a friend, as someone that I highly respect, as someone that I'm so excited for because I think you're going to do such amazing things in this I line of work. That. And so many families have already benefited and will continue to benefit. So keep up the amazing work, Erin. And thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. And you know, one of your favorite lines of the podcast, which I'm going to end with is, to the listeners, thank you as always for tuning in. Until next time. Until next time. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Baby Steps Nutrition Podcast with your host, Argavan Neoforush. We hope you enjoyed our deep dive into all the tips and tricks you and your family can use to make daily life a little easier. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please leave a rating and review, share with others, and follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Baby Steps Nutrition Podcast. As always, you can head over to babystepsnutrition.com to sign up for our email list, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. See you next time. Tune in. Feel great.